So, Richard Trenton Chase was a horrible, terrible murderer. Yeah, uh, agreed. How about we talk about him again? Do we have to? Yeah, we do. We didn't finish it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what else could happen to the man? <laughs> Let's find out. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. We would be dead. Hooray! Wait. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so happy about it i know <laughs> i just <laughs> bring in the heat oh you're gonna part bring two. the heat tonight i love it bring in the heat for part two nice so um tonight we have part two obviously of richard trenton chase and if you have not yet listened to part one i recommend you stop what you're doing and do that right now because we cover a lot of ground and the second half won't make like any sense without the first so go do that and then come back Cool. I don't want to keep keep you guys waiting too long, so we'll keep our business very brief tonight. We have a Patreon account, in case you didn't hear. Um, if you would like to like access to the additional content or exclusive little gifts Leslie and I have cooked up for the future, or you just want to support the content we already are creating on a regular basis, please hop on over to our Patreon and give us a little monthly donation. Every little bit helps, and we will love you forever. Forever, ever. Forever, ever. Come on back Friday at 10 for our campfire stories. Don't forget to rate and review us. That is literally what will move this podcast forward. And then let's get on with the show. Oh, wait, no, we have a new patron. Oh, yeah. Yay! Um, We're going to make sure we do something special at the very end of this podcast for our patrons. Mm -hmm. But we do have a new one as of today. We'd like to thank Julie Zangle for supporting us on Patreon. Yes, thank you, Julie. Thank you, Julie. We love you. And, uh, and with that, we'll talk about a gross murderer. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so good at segues. <laughs> Super good. <laughs> when we left off with this case, Richard Chase had just murdered Daniel Meredith, Evelyn Maroth, and Evelyn's five-year-old son, Jason. In part one, I mentioned that Richard Chase had sodomized the body of his previous victim, Teresa Wallen, and I will correct myself here. That was a mistake. I had crossed my wires a bit there. He does viciously rape Evelyn Maroth, and there is ample evidence of that. And while it is certainly possible that Richard Chase had performed sexual acts on the body of Teresa Wallen, no semen was left behind as evidence. So, okay. I feel better now. Yeah, you look better. Thank you. (laughs) I'm only human, you guys. Every now and then I'm going to make a mistake. I'm jotting it down. But I owned up to it. Last episode, we recounted the absolutely grisly murder scenes for you, so I don't feel the need to do it again. You good with that? Yeah, I'm fine with it. I I still remember them. Can't really shake it. Nope, not at all. <laughs> I will give you a full bu- a few bullet points as a refresher on the crime scene. Danny Meredith's body was found shot in the head with a 22 caliber handgun in the front room. His wallet and car keys had been stolen. In the bathroom was a full bathtub, the water being a bright red with blood. In the bedroom next to the bed was the body of Jason Maroth, Evelyn's five-year-old son, also shot in the head with a 22 caliber handgun. And on the bed lie Evelyn, brutally murdered, also 
with the same 22 caliber handgun and then eviscerated, sodomized, and cannibalized. Crazy trifecta right there. In the mailbox outside of Evelyn's home was another carefully placed 22 caliber bullet. And that is never explained. Oh, yeah. He was just like, I might need this later. (laughs) Maybe. I think he was trying out like calling cards. I don't know that he fully had a real method. I think he was, I think he was trying things out. Maybe. Like, I'll leave, I'll leave a clue, but then didn't really do it again. Well, he never committed another murder after oh, this. right. But yeah. also, I don't know if I believe he's with it enough to leave a calling card, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Maybe he just thought it was a good hiding spot. Maybe. I know the detectives mention that they thought it might be a calling card. I totally get that. And it makes perfect sense. I just, it's just worthy of discussion that like, is he mentally fit enough to do that kind of thing? I gotcha. All right. We don't, we don't, we'll never know, but it's just, just worthy to think about. With Evelyn Marath at the time of her murder was also, 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 her 22-month-old nephew, David Ferrara, who was nowhere to be found. So we left off on, where's the baby? Oh my God, I forgot about the baby. The baby. That's right. We're in a frantic search for the baby. I forgot, I forgot <laughs> to search. <laughs> you could be re-stressed out now. There you go. Okay. The case soon took on a highly urgent air as finding the baby became paramount, obviously. Find the freaking baby. The killer's other victims had all been murdered and left at the scene. So where was David? Detectives found Danny Meredith, the guy killed in the front room of Evelyn's house, her neighbor, I think, station wagon, abandoned not far from the murder scene in a parking lot with the keys still in the ignition. The police did not know it, but the parking lot was where where they found Danny Meredith's car, was also, was, I can't talk tonight, was only about 100 yards from apartment 15 of the Watt Avenue complex where Richard Trenton Chase lived. So they were right there. Ooh. They picked up his car 100 yards away was their killer, and they didn't know it. Man, that's haunting. That is. The FBI were immediately called in. Robert Ressler, the mine hunter genius that I talk about all the time, and Russ Vorpagel, don't kill me on pronunciation on that. B-O-R-P-A-G-E-L. Or Pagel? Sounds right, right? I forgot what letters you said. Cool. I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> they had developed a profile for their mystery killer. So like I was saying before, these are the guys that create serial killer profiles, and then they look for that. They said that this murderer seemed to be a disorganized killer, as we mentioned in the previous episode, which means he did not choose his victims for a reason but rather acted merely on opportunity. They surmised that he was most likely mentally ill, you think, probably suffering from some sort of psychosis. The killer clearly had not carefully planned out his crimes and did little to hide or destroy evidence. He left footprints and fingerprints, and by all appearances, he must have gone at least part of his way from the murder scene, wearing blood-spattered clothing in broad daylight. Only a hundred yards, we'll come to find out later. But still. And these were not the action of a man who was trying to hide. If you were trying to hide, you'd get rid of the evidence and take off your gross clothes. But he didn't do that. The killer seemed to give very little thought to the consequences of his actions. Wrestler and Vorpagel posited that his home would be um, like sloppy and carelessly messy like his crime scenes were. The murder scenes were close together, so it was possible that their killer didn't have a car. He might not have—he he had stolen Danny Meredith's vehicle, but he did not keep it long. This also meant that it was likely that the killer lived somewhere close to the scene of the crimes. And they also thought 
that he would most definitely kill again. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That guy would have killed a million people if he could have. It's how he, it's the only way for him to survive. He needed his blood. He did, yeah. To live. B12, man. B12. Could have just had vitamins all this time. She's not the same. (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) They thought that he would kill again and also keep on killing until he was caught, which meant they had to work fast. Wrestler and Vorpagel figured him to be a white male in his mid-twenties, thin and slovenly. There would most likely be evidence of the crimes remaining in his home, as he did not take care to clean up at all. He either would have a history of mental illness, drug use, or both. (laughs) Both. And he might be something of a loner. Well, that, with with that description, it's no wonder. Like, who's going to be friends with that guy? Yeah. And their description was pretty spot on. They got it right. So they were off to a really good start. Detectives canvassed the area, questioning residents to see if anyone unusual had been seen lurking around the area. And some of them had seen a white male driving a red station wagon, which if we'll remember from the previous episode is what he, what Richard Chase drives. They said he was painfully thin, check, and dirty with scraggly hair, check, and wearing a bright orange parka, which like, that's not exactly camouflage, dude. He's really bad at it. He's so bad at it. Or something like a little less noteworthy when you're doing your crazy killings. Or don't. Or don't kill people. Wear the brightest color you can. That too. Then they'll just catch you right away. Bright orange is pretty close to the brightest color you could wear. Yeah. I mean, I think he did a spectacular job of of getting caught. Helping the detectives <laughs> clean up the streets. Bravo to him. I like that. <laughs> Detectives said they had a pretty decent description to go on. However, the problem was a tall, thin, white man with long, scraggly hair could have been anyone at the time. It's really funny when the documentary I watched, the detectives are like, this was the time when everybody was hippie, so being dirty and having long hair was super common. (laughs) I know, I laughed so hard. Fascists. (laughs) That's what these guys are saying, and it's really funny. They're all these, like, older men and like, the kind of glasses that turn color when you're in the sun they get like turn into sunglasses oh it's a specific choice i love it yeah (laughs) Yeah. but they were looking for a dirty hippie police sketch artist worked up a rough sketch which is super creepy and i will make sure to post it in our photo suite and they released it to the press hoping someone might know who this filthy stranger was and thankfully someone did on the same day Teresa wallen was murdered so that was his first victim a woman named Nan- not sorry, his second victim. The first was the random drive-by shooting. This, the first woman he killed. So on the same day she was murdered, a woman named Nancy Holden had a strange encounter. She was shopping in the town and country village shopping center, not far from Watt Avenue, and close to the Wallen residence. When she saw a strange man, the man was again painfully thin and disheveled. He had long stringy hair and was wearing that bright orange parka. His hands and coat appeared to be blood spattered, and the man had a completely lifeless stare that he had trained on her. Ugh. Like some dead-eyed guy just looking at you like a zombie. I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> Can you imagine just being in the mall and this guy like, I've had that happen before. You have? Yeah. When when I worked at the mall, I had a I had a small stalker. Ew. It was terrifying. My managers had to get involved in everything. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, and I was only like a junior in high school at the time, and he must have been in his like mid to late twenties. He was like a ew. 
Yeah. He was a manager at GameStop. Cool. He looked like Claudio from, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> no, I can't. John's going to be so mad at me. Hold Guys, on. if you remember who Claudio is from, <laughs> I want you to tell me. And I want you to I'm put a so picture mad. in the Facebook group. It's like a, a mystery for them to solve now. <laughs> It's from a band. Why can't I think of their name? I hate podcasting. My brain shuts <laughs> off. <laughs> I don't know, but I want this Coheed to be a mystery. Cambria. Okay. okay. Hold on. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> I don't know. I like the journey we just went on. Okay. He had a MySpace and his name was um, These Blue Eyes. Your stalker? Yeah. That was the name of his MySpace. And then he would tell me. Was he talking about your eyes? I think so. <gasps> Yeah, it was terrible. Oh, I hate this. Did he like get arrested or anything? Uh, no. It it was very mild, and my managers kind of handled it, Ugh. and he never came back in the store after that. And they would just walk me to my car just in case. It wasn't like anything. Mm-hmm. It never went further, but it was. You know, I'm glad that they took precautions. So when I yeah. hear this story, which I, I had read about, I always think of this guy. He had a MySpace account. About your eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look at them. They're I mean, beautiful. they're beautiful, and I don't blame him for being obsessed with them, but mm-hmm. still pr- pretty creepy decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I, hope he, I hope he doesn't listen. I hope he's gone. Bye, guy who he looks might. like Claudio from that band. Yeah. <laughs> Go eat in Cambria. Sorry. Sorry, that everyone. One. <laughs> so Nancy sees this guy staring at her like a zombie. And she tries to avoid him, but he walks straight toward her and starts to ask her a question. He asks her if she remembered when Kurt was killed on his motorcycle. He wanted to know if she had been there. Now, Nancy was pretty startled by this. Ten years earlier, she had dated a boy named Kurt, and he was killed on his motorcycle. So she's like, wait a minute, like, that's that's like a valid question about me. So she looked at the guy and said, who are you? And he replied, I'm Rick Chase. So clearly he didn't want to hide his identity too much. His filthy blood-stained appearance and dead eyes made her extremely nervous, obviously. So Nancy begged off as quickly as she could. Richard asked her for a ride, trying to follow her to the parking lot. So good that your managers walked you to your car. In case he was like this guy. Mm -hmm. But Nancy declined and got in her car, locked the doors, and quickly drove away. The experience was spooky, but nothing illegal had happened. And if anything, she felt kind of guilty for being rude to him. Yeah, because they, they went to high school together and he was actually friends with that guy. Yeah, as much friends as he could really be with anybody. Mm-hmm. That was like one of his, the, the friends that he had in high school, that was one of, in that group. One of his drug buddies? One of his drug buddies. Mm-hmm. He must have been a cool dude. Mm-hmm. So Nancy leaves, doesn't want to think about it anymore. She's like, oh, that was really weird. I was kind of rude. I'm just going to put it out of my mind. But when Nancy saw the police sketch in the news and in the paper, she immediately called authorities and told told them, like, this is what happened to me. That guy is Rick Chase. So detectives ran a background check on Richard Chase and ran into all those previous scary offenses that his parents did such a good job ignoring. So they did come back to bite him in the end, but it took too long. Yeah, for sure. And with that, they were sure that they had their man. They read his record and were like, oh, yeah, it's this guy. The guy with the liver and a bucket in his car. It's him. Yep. Detectives also found the gun registration of a 22 caliber semi-automatic handgun sold in December 1977 to a Richard Chase 
who lived on Watt Avenue. On January 10th, he had purchased ammunition. Both the background check and the gun registration led them to Richard's address on Watt Avenue. Nice. Don't you think the guy at the gun tour was probably like, oh, I did not do a good job on that background check? <laughs> no, I bet it happens all the time. Oh, God, that's so much worse. Yep. <laughs> He's like, well, you can't catch them all. <laughs> you guys need a gun? <laughs> Can I get you some new guns? Yeah. Yeah? I have a lot of new guns. Yeah. I'm a gun store. <laughs> So the detectives drive over to apartment number 15 in the complex on Watt Avenue, and they learned from the apartment manager that apartment 15 was rented by Richard Chase and that his mother paid the rent, and she felt that her son was the victim of LSD abuse, which is a real cheeky way to put that. The victim of drug abuse. Yeah. I mean, no. you can say that they suffered from addiction. That's fine, but it's just so weird. It's just that just shows her perspective so much. She's like, my son did nothing. He's guilty of this taking over his life. Right. There's nothing wrong with him. It's the drugs, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. I just thought thought that that was kind of telling. It yeah, absolutely. At this point, Chase had um, refused to let even his mother into his apartment. At this point, like for a while. At that point, she could like come to the door, but he wouldn't let her in. Mm. Which, of course, not as we will find out why. I watched an excellent documentary, as I had previously hinted to, on Richard Chase that I will link in the show notes this week for sure. But a particularly evocative moment in this documentary was when one of the police officers that said he said that on his way over to Richard Chase's apartment, that he thought, if this guy is there, I'm going to shoot him on the spot. Just point blank execute the guy. Yeah. And he says in this documentary, quote, That's not a thing that cops are supposed to think. Yeah. But such was the monstrosity of Richard Trenton Chase. So this gives you an idea of how how brutal he was and how afraid officers were of him. I know. Well, those scenes had to be disgusting. Well, yeah. There was a lot of organs and blood and... And there's a missing baby. And the first woman was pregnant. Yeah. It's a lot. There's a lot of awful. So I can't place too much judgment on the cops. And he does later... Remark that when he became, when he had the opportunity to do it, like he could have killed him. This guy could have easily shot him when they caught him. And he was like, he said he couldn't do it. And that was the moment when he realized that that was the difference between him and Richard Chase. Interesting. Yeah. It was just a really kind of telling little exchange where he's like, you know, Mm -hmm. normal people, even police officers who are trained to shoot when they have to don't have that impulse. They can't do it. They can't just take a life. That's the switch off with people like him. It doesn't, they can just do it without thought or consequence in their mind. So I just, that, that's just like an interesting bonus nugget that I latched on to. I also- Nuggies. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> nuggies. <laughs> I also found it really interesting that the cops had no problem admitting he had like those thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's good for therapy. Yeah, it, it definitely is good. But I don't know if I would want to be like, I was going to murder that guy. I guess he didn't do it, so it doesn't matter. But just interesting. So the detectives knock on Richard's door repeatedly, but he wouldn't open it. Of course not. Luckily, however, and this is like Dave's ex machina, the officers find that the apartment right next to Richard's was vacant and open. Hmm. Yeah. So they duck in it. 
They also admit in this documentary that they did not have a warrant for his arrest. They did not have an, a, warrant, a warrant to go in that apartment. They didn't have a warrant to go in his apartment. But they asked their superior, like, what do we do? And he's like, okay, well, we're drawing up warrants right now. Just wait there and get him. So everything happened, like, at the same time. Okay. Just like in the movies. Totally just like in the movies. You don't think that happens, but it did here. So they duck into this empty apartment and wait, like, peeking out the door. Because the apartments are kind of set up like a motel. They weren't going inside a building. All the doors were exterior. Okay. So they could, like, just look out the door and then see what was happening. So after a little while of silence, Richard figured that they had left and walks out of his apartment with, his, with a box in his arms. And the detectives give chase immediately. He turns over his shoulder, sees them coming after them, and starts to run. Um, so one, two detectives are coming after him, and two are, have been planted around the other side. They cut him off at the pass and tackle him. It's super dramatic. Cool. And at that point, they're like, okay, well, we're just going to be able to cuff him, but he wouldn't stop fighting. He fought really hard, and they noticed he had, like, a weapon. He had a holster across mm -hmm. his chest with the gun in it. I think at that point, like, they could probably – they're cops, and he's fighting them with a gun. They can arrest him. And eventually, they, they went out, and they're able to apprehend him. A semi-automatic handgun was taken from him, and they found Dan Meredith's wallet in Richard's back pocket along with a pair of latex gloves. That's not incriminating at all. Mm -mm. The contents of the box he was carrying were pieces of blood-stained blood paper and rags. There is never an explanation on that one. They're just bloody rags and papers in a box. Totally casual, normal thing to have while you're walking around. Just something to suck on when he gets hungry. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Ew, I hate it. They take him to the police station and try to get him to confess, and he admitted to killing several dogs, but stubbornly resisted to talking about the murders. While he was in custody, detectives searched his apartment in hopes of finding a clue about the missing baby, but they found so much more. Hmm. When they entered the apartment, they found it smelled of death. It was very putrid smelling and disgusting. Nearly everything in the entire place was soaked in blood. Just sat, there's just blood is everywhere. The sofa is soaked, the carpet is soaked, the bathroom, the kitchen, even the plates and drinking glasses. In the kitchen, they found several small pieces of bone, and in the refrigerator were containers filled with bloody, like, sludge and unidentified body tissue. Yep. But the, the kicker is that they then found on the counter an electric blender filled with a slurry of what appeared to be blood, organs, and Coca-Cola. His favorite drink. It's so weird that he puts the Coca-Cola in there. I know. There's no explanation of that either other than maybe it tastes better that way. They also found three pet collars, but no animals. He fucking obviously he ate them. And photo... This is weird. I see this in a couple sources and not all, but I'm going to say it anyway. They said they found photographic overlays of human organs from a science book on the table. Along with newspapers where he had circled ads for people selling dogs. Hate that. So that's all pretty incriminating. So then we come to trial. Evidence was gathered from Richard to compare to the samples that they already had been analyzing in the crime lab from the murder victims. So they obviously had semen samples and stuff like that. So they had his DNA too. And there are a couple reports that say when they tried to draw his blood, he freaked the fuck out. Because the thought of taking his blood away from him was like his worst nightmare. So he had to be completely restrained when they took blood from him. 
I don't know if that's super true. It's only in a couple places, but it seems to add up. It would make sense. I mean, right? he only has so, so much of it. He's looking <laughs> for it all the time. He's fucking running out. He needs more. That's his spice. His blood is his spice. Is this another Dune reference? It is, yeah. Okay. That's for that's for Andrew. <laughs> well, I quote Andrew in like five minutes, so that's a nice little tribute. Okay. <laughs> so Ferris Salome was appointed to Chase's case as his defense attorney, and he was immediately they immediately took Richard away from the detectives who had spent a ton of time trying to extract a confession from him. You know, before you say, like, I want a lawyer, you see that in like law and order and stuff all the time. Lawyer up, you guys. Lawyer up. Don't murder people, but like lawyer up. And if you do murder people, don't lawyer up. <laughs> so they can catch you. And wear really bright clothing. And wear your orange parka. Uh, Chase's responses to the detectives only revealed that he was extremely paranoid. Dirt. Feeling many groups of people, including the Nazis and the aliens, were coming to get him. Hey man, aliens are no joke. They are not, as I have found out this week. <laughs> Oh, God. I can't. I'm going to be so scared. Stay tuned Next for week. a half a ween episode. Oh, God. Leslie's going to scare the pants off of me. It's coming. This is her getting back at me for Daniel LaPlante. Yeah. <laughs> this dance with Richard and the detectives went on for two months with no sign of the baby. Where's the baby? Hashtag. Where's Hashtag. the baby? Good one. Police officers continued to search for baby David tirelessly. They even went to Chase's... Chase and Richard, sorry, you guys. They even went to Richard's mother's home, but she was totally uncooperative, which is also not surprising, insisting that despite what they had found, nothing proved that her son had done anything wrong. This, I'm sorry, this bitch what? has got to go. <laughs> I know! Hey, we found his apartment was full of guts and blood and evidence. She's like, mm-mm, not hey, didn't do it. Oh, my gosh. I know. Okay. At one point... Chase had admitted to, he was being held in prison, obviously. At one point, Chase admitted to another inmate during this time that he had killed one, he had killed someone and drank her blood because he had blood poisoning and he needed, needed the blood to cure himself. And he had grown tired of hunting and killing animals. Makes sense. Yeah, you know, I don't see how humans are easier than animals. No. That seems like far more of a struggle, but that's what he said. Finally... On March 24th, the baby was found. I'm not going to like this, am I? No, you're going to hate it so much. A church janitor came upon a box containing the remains of a male baby, and he called the police. When they arrived, they recognized the clothing immediately. It was the missing baby from Evelyn Maroth's home. The baby had been decapitated, and the head lay underneath the torso. A hole in the center of the head indicated that he had been shot. Beneath the body, was a ring of keys that fit into Daniel Meredith's car. Or Danny Meredith is what he went by. The lead prosecutor for the case of California versus Richard Trenton Chase was Ronald W. Totcherman, and he wanted the death penalty. From the jump, that's what he was going for. Absolutely. Yeah. The defense entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but Toucherman was determined to show that Richard knew the difference between right and wrong and that he was not compelled to murder. He did it consciously and with purpose. The prosecution now freely, at this point, if you ask them about it, they freely admit that they knew Richard Trenton Chase was severely mentally ill, but thought that the death penalty was appropriate given his acts and that 
it appeared that in some ways he knew what he was doing. But they say, if you, if you listen to interviews with him now, they're like, that guy was super, super mentally ill. Yeah. But they wanted to also prove he was sane. It was a very conflicting thing. Now, the case had gotten so much press that they had to request a chain of venue, a chain, change of venue, and the trial was moved 120 miles south to Santa Clara County. And by the time it was all over, dozens of, oh no, a dozen of psychiatrists had examined Richard, and he admitted to one of them that he was afraid um, that kill, I'm sorry, that killing his victims disturbed him, and he was afraid that they might come for him from the dead. So he's saying that he didn't, that's that's a wayward way of saying he knew that killing them was wrong, and they were so keep that in your head, um, and that they were going to come after him for the wrongs that he had done to him. There was no evidence in his admission that he ever felt forced, so his confessions don't. He doesn't say things like "I had to do it." He simply thought that he needed the blood for therapeutic reasons. Chase admitted that he had killed baby David and drank his blood as he thought the purity of a baby would make it more therapeutic, which is as bad as it gets, basically. One psychiatrist found him to be, um, they thought he had an antisocial personality, which my friend Andrew does say, hint to some of that too. But this guy said he was not schizophrenic. I think he was a cocktail of several things, possibly. His thought processes were not disrupted, and he was aware of what he had done and that it was wrong. It's, it's muddy. On January 2nd, 1979, the trial began. Chase was charged with six counts of murder. The prosecutor emphasized throughout the trial that Chase had had a choice and mentioned several times that he had brought rubber gloves with him to the victim's homes with the intent of murder. Now, the whole case hangs on these gloves a lot of the time, that he wore gloves, but he also thought he was com committing like a medical act. So if you were like, I'm, I'm taking this stuff like scientifically to treat myself, you'd probably slap on some gloves. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Just playing devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. um, because while I certainly agree that this guy was a total monster, I also think that he was very mentally ill and that he was not, they, they didn't go about some of his case properly, but we'll get to that later. Altogether, there were 250 prosecution exhibits, the strongest of which were Chase's Richard's gun and Danny Meredith's wallet found in Richard's pocket. Richard then took the stand in his own defense. Bad idea. He looked positively ghoulish at this point. He dropped in weight to 107 pounds. His eyes were sunken in and just totally flat. He said that he was semi-conscious during Teresa Wallen's murder. Like he was like in a state. He didn't really know what was going on. He admitted to drinking her blood he said he did not recall much about the second series of murders, but he knew that he had shot the baby and cut off its head, leaving... Oh, this is the worst, and I debated even saying it. Leaving it in a bucket to drain out what he could get from it. So I can see why the guy's looking for the death penalty. Someone says that, and your, your reaction is like, they gotta go. Yeah. I mean, people are for sure gonna argue with me that are against the death penalty, and I don't... I don't even... I'm not even here to say that I think it's right. I'm just saying I can see why a prosecutor might jump to that if they were having a, a response to his act. Mm -hmm. So Richard said he thought that his problems may have stemmed from his inability to have sex with girls as a teenager. And then he said that he was sorry for what he did. A little too little too late. The defense asked for a verdict of second degree murder to spare Richard the death penalty since he was clearly mentally unstable or quote insane and had never been given proper help. Kotcherman argued that he was a sexual sadist and a monster who knew what he was doing and could not be salvaged. That's the prosecution. 
So on May 8th, 1979, after five hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict of six counts of first-degree murder. Now, during the phase of the trial where he was pleading his insanity, the jury found Chase legally sane after deliberating for just an hour, and it took them four hours to decide that Chase should die in the gas chamber at San Quentin Penitentiary. However, that would never come to pass. On the day after Christmas in 1980, day before my birthday, terrible, the guard looked in on Richard Chase. He was lying on his back in his bunk, breathing normally. The guard called out to him. He did not respond. This was pretty much par for the course. This guy was not chatty. At 11.05, the same guard looked into the cell again. Chase was on his stomach, both legs extended off his bunk, and his feet were on the floor. His head was against the mattress and his arms extended toward the pillow. The guard called out to Chase, who did not move. Richard. I'm sorry. I, like, mix my names for him. I'm so sorry. He went in and pulled Richard off the bed but it was very clear that he was dead. K.P. Holmes, the coroner, was called. Richard had been, uh, as it turned out, hoarding his daily dose of Cinequin, an antidepressant which he had been prescribed in prison. I'm going to take one minute here to um, reiterate the fact that he had never been diagnosed as depressed in any way. Right. (laughs) That was never a problem they said he had. So I don't know why they were treating him with that, but that's what they gave him which came to his cell in a package of three pills every day. So he hoarded them and then overdosed. The cause of his death was toxic ingestion. His heart was found to be normal and in good shape, despite his lifelong concerns. Pulmonary artery intact. The prison psychiatrist noted that Richard had been psychotic since the time he had entered prison, but no one much bothered about the nature of his bizarre obsession with blood. Wild. So isn't it? My cat is eating and I'm sure you guys are going to be able to hear it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hold on. I'm going to move her bowl. There was a hair tie trapped under her water bowl and she wanted it so bad. So I had to get it. Where's She's making too much noise. <laughs> <sighs> so that is the whole case. Now, I won't say I necessarily have a problem, but what I think raises eyebrows is the idea of sanity and insanity in a legal environment. Like, so when I talked to my friend, Andrew Jarima, who is an actual psychologist, um, he told me that basically to get an insanity defense is extremely difficult because there only has to be like one instance where they imply that they maybe knew killing in general was wrong. So if they know that killing a person is wrong, they're sane. Yeah. Which feels nuts and super general and not nuanced nearly enough to take into consideration the variety of people that probably come through courtrooms. Well, also think about, so think about all the mentally ill people that there are Mm -hmm. that don't kill because they know that it's wrong. So for him, he may have known that it was wrong, but he didn't seem to have any, he didn't seem to care about the act of it. He was more in... Well, in later... I was going to say he was more intrigued in a sense, but from his young age, even killing yeah. the animals, which does happen. Like some kids do that and then they just stop, you know, well, once they, they realize, realize that it hurts them and they don't want exactly. to do it anymore. Exactly. He seemed to not have that. So whether or not that was caused by his mental illness or because he was 
a bad person. Yeah. Is really the debate, and that's a hard thing to consider. But, I mean, there are so many mentally ill people that they and they are not harmful whatsoever. That's like the defense that I was bullied and that's why I killed people. And there are a lot of people that say, well, I was bullied too and I didn't kill a bunch of people. Exactly. So it's it's just, there's, I just, I definitely think that there is more to it than just that. Um, and also like, I don't think he should ever have been released upon society. Don't get me wrong. He deserved to be put away. Absolutely. But he also deserved to be treated I think Mm -hmm. the only way that he could ever like really comprehend what he did and if and how wrong it was is to get him to a place where his brain will recognize that. And then I guess at that point, whose fault was it that he wasn't treated sooner? So is it his fault that he went through that he did all these crimes (laughs) because he didn't get treated or yeah, it's the, the real very hard, like ugh, the real killer about that is that he was technically treated so many times he was he was he saw so many psychiatrists and none of them were like oh we need to fix this guy just the one that kept him briefly and then sent him home and his mom was like no 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 it's fine don't take your medication so the system is is definitely partially to blame for him in my opinion yeah because he could have been had he received consistent treatment cut off at the pass and he wasn't. Crazy. Did Andrew talk about any of that? Like the system? Uh, yeah, somewhat. He he said frequently that patients will get um, misdiagnosed mm-hmm. and that they will, that's just their fact now. That's their truth. They will identify with whatever it is they said. But the only thing about that is that he they did tell him he was schizophrenic. So I could only imagine that part of it was his mother saying, you don't need this. You're fine. I think that was a big part of it. I definitely do, too. Also, Andrew had a lot of awesome things to say, which I'm going to have to, like, I want to include in a separate interview for our Patreon um, subscribers because it's really insightful, but I don't know that I'm going to do it justice just reading it to you guys. Um, He said that he really believed that this guy for sure needed treatment and that he said that prison psychiatrists are often behind current mental mental health standards by a couple steps. So they wouldn't have necessarily known the proper way to deal with him. He said that he for sure should have been on antipsychotic medication, which he was not put on. He was put on an antidepressant. Which could only make it worse. Yeah, that's the thing. Senequin is a medication. Um, I'll find the family of drugs it's in. Hold on. It's a tricyclic which is um, a family of drugs that was used early on in like the 50s when they were first starting to treat depression to treat it, but they don't really use it anymore because it was not very effective. And um, I think it's very tranquilizing, makes people sleepy. Mm-hmm. And um, and it causes a lot of suicidal thoughts. Yeah. That, so my mom brought this up. Again, she is a healthcare worker and she was telling me during the 70s and 80s when they were you know, going through the whole dehospitalization mm-hmm. of everything. Um, she was saying one of the things was about the medications and that at that point in time, they were finding that a lot of those medications weren't working, that the side effects were more severe than what they were helping. And so that was all part of it as well. So if you're saying that the prison system was a little behind mm-hmm. with that kind of data um, or treatment, then... 
it might that might have been why he was still getting those pills or maybe that's still what was being treated and you know in a couple years from now from then it would have changed yeah this was 1980 so mm-hmm. um yeah Andrew also said something I found really interesting. He said that if a person is has an illness like they're schizophrenic and they also do psychedelic drugs to the extent that he did, it can kind of trap them in a state where they, they aren't in touch with reality anymore. Absolutely. They become kind of like permanently disconnected. That's My mom works with most of her patients are like that. They can't do any other kind of drug. Like mm-hmm. if somebody's like, oh, weed will calm you down. It does not do that for them. It's very separate. They have adverse reactions to it. Um, LSD is a big one for them too. So, which he did a lot of, and and according to Andrew, like coupled with like a a disorder like schizophrenia, it can really mess with your your vision of reality. So yeah. he, I mean, schizophrenics have delusions. That's that's their thing. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and now you're just amplifying it. Yeah. And that would just be like saying, like, you're definitely right. That's just like egging him on. Like, your reality is real to you, and it's double real when you're in, like, drug haze. So there are a lot of signs, in my opinion, that point to the fact that he was just— there's no way he was in his, like, best mind when he was doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. Again, do I think it's a defense for it? Absolutely not. But do I think he should have been handled differently? Probably. It's It's a sad tale all around. Yeah, it's it's sad for absolutely everybody involved, but it does pose a lot of um questions that I think we should ask ourselves and ask the legal system and ask the mental health industry. Mm-hmm. You know, just like how are we doing our best? Yeah. There should be more education about it and mm-hmm. it should mental health should definitely be uh not such a tab- taboo like yeah. it, you know. Mm-hmm. It should be more accepted. I think our governor just spoke about it recently. He did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, did, I didn't hear all of that one, and I normally listen to him every day from my updates, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't listen to that one. I hope it was yeah, good. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was good. You know, good. he was saying that it's, it's something, mental health is something that should be talked about, and people should not be embarrassed that they have it, because there's a lot of people that have it, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of good people that can you know, live a daily life. I mean, yeah, I know plenty of people that are fully functioning because they are getting treatment and, you know, they're accepted. (laughs) Better living through therapy and chemistry, you know. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Again, had he had those opportunities, this may not have ever happened. Yeah. And if nothing else, I think he probably should have been studied. (laughs) For sure. After they caught him, wouldn't you want to study that guy? Yep. Like, what went on in your head? Yeah, could have answered a lot of questions for... I think so, but instead they gave him the wrong medication and he killed himself. Great. So that is the sordid tale of Richard Trenton Chase. Um, Toast. Okay. (laughs) Who were the good guys? (laughs) Um, Well, not his mom. (laughs) What about the little neighbor girl that that's a good one neighbor girl neighbor girl Mm -hmm. this time i will also um i would say detective um wrestler of the fbi as well because he is an amazing genius that helped catch them and it's oh oh you know who i want nancy the high school friend i was just gonna say her yeah that's the one that poor girl i wish she said something sooner but she at least called when she figured it out can you imagine being her and seeing that on the news and being like, oh, my God. Ugh. 
And then she didn't even, she said later in interviews that she knew that he like had like rusty colored stuff all over him. But it was when that when she saw what he was accused of, she was like, that was blood. He had come right from killing that woman. And I saw him in the mall covered in her blood. Yeah. Horrifying. I bet she doesn't sleep anymore. (laughs) So to Nancy. To Nancy. (laughs) Well done, Nancy. Oh, and we wanted to toast some other people tonight too, didn't we? Yes. Our Patreons. Yes, our patrons. I know we've given you guys a shout out, but um, from here on out, what we're going to do is we're going to toast you. Um any new patrons that we get in addition to our heroes of or, or most entertaining characters of the week. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to start that off with our patrons that we have so far because we really appreciate you guys getting the ball rolling for us. Yes. So without further ado, we toast to um, Heidi, not from Book Club Dugan. And though you're not from Book Club, you are one of our best fiends. Kaleva. <laughs> uh, next, we toast Jason Smith who is also not in my book club, but we do share similar stomach issues. (laughs) (laughs) Jess Fermento. Also known as Lydia Bloom. She is a fantastic dancer and a burlesque dancer too. Yeah, she's very great. (laughs) Michaela Simon. Just the sweetest little girl (sighs) I've ever met. Such an angel. (laughs) She's like our our (laughs) Facebook book group angel. (laughs) Yes, and a great graphic designer. Yes. Uh, and Julie's angle. Julie is our um, as a fan of us and a fan of Dr. Phil. And she's a lawyer. So if Dr. Phil sues us, I hope she chooses our side. Yes. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Don't sue us, Dr. Phil. Please. <laughs> Save us, Julie. Yeah, please. We swear. We'll be nice. Yeah. Cool. And uh, I, I think that's everything. For today. What's our sign-off? We need a sign-off. Yes, we do. If we were trusting enough to leave our doors unlocked and a stranger entered our neighborhood, we would be dead. We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. This was the time when everybody was hippie, so being dirty and having long hair was super common. (laughs) 